This is a continuation of my coverage of writer Roger Stern's run on Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. Previous editions of the show to cover this run are episodes 225 and 227. Fantastic cover from Frank Miller Herald's Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 55. Nitro a villain I'd never heard of, but apparently it appeared in Jim Starlin's Captain Marvel, is apparently back. That's irrelevant to the cover, but catches the eye like a flare in the sky. Miller's Spider-Man is energetic and Ditko-esque, whilst Nitro, all flowing grey hair and purple and blue bodysuit, is equally ball-grabbing. The colours also aid the image. Spider-Man is in black and red, and even though the red is the highlights of his suit, giving him an eerie look that presages his black and white costume. The loud pink background, instead of being garish, is actually complementary to the action. The impressionistic depiction of Nitro exploding is more effective than seeing him blow up, and overall the different visual elements combine in a most pleasing fashion. Nitro would ultimately be the catalyst for the massive Marvel crossover, Civil War. Big Blowout is by Roger Stern, with art by Luke McDonnell on pencils and Jim Mooney on inks. The cover date was June 1981, and each issue that I will cover tonight will, you know, subsequent from that. You can work it out yourself. You know, I'm not a teacher, I'm not spelling it out for you. Peter's alarm awakens him at 7am. Following a night of Spider-Man-related activities, he grumpily smashes it to bits. He immediately regrets this action as A, he's only just bought the damn thing, and two, his landlady Mrs. Muggins comes a calling for the rent. Cue that gift from Spider-Man 2. Deciding to evade the tenacious Mrs. Muggins, Peter dons his Spider-Man costume and swings off to ESU for a day of teaching assistantry. A great, albeit low-key, character-based opening. Peter here has had too late a night a situation a lot of young people can relate to, albeit for slightly different reasons, and he regrets it in the AM. He muses where some extra money can come from, but he's really struggling to balance his life right now, being a TA, a part-time photographer, a graduate student, and a wall-crawling superhero, so taking another job would be too much for the work-life balance. He ponders asking both Jolly J. Jonah Jameson, head of the Daily Bugle, and Dr. Sloan, his TA mentor, for a raise. Hmm, wonder how that'll go. Peter is also ruminating on what a massive jerk he's been to Deborah Whitman, of which he is totally guilty. So, money worries. Check. Job worries. Check. Women worries. Check. General life going to hell worries. Check. The hero that could be you. Remember? Deb, quite rightly, blows him off. That's not to which the title of the issue refers. It's just a general reaction to his awful treatment of her. Not just in the last issue of this comic, but over an amazing Spider-Man. Covered on this show as part of the Daily Denny back in episodes 157 through 161. Who says this isn't the Marvel age of self-promotion? 
Again, Peter is self-aware enough to know he is being a jerk, but doesn't stop him from doing it. Upon arrival at his office, Steve Hopkins points out the bizarre headgear Marcy Kane is wearing this week, a recurring subplot that is really none of Steve's business, and then Peter learns that it's Thursday. Along with Arthur Dent, Peter apparently never got the hang of Thursdays because he has no classes until noon. Still, it is payday, so the morning isn't totally wasted, and Peter heads to the bank to cash his cheque. Elsewhere at Project Pegasus, a facility for keeping super criminals in check, Nitro's daughter has engaged the services of a lawyer to point out that Project Pegasus, and by extension the US government, have no right to hold Nitro captive. He hasn't been charged, he hasn't been to court yet, and he's not been found guilty of any crime. Without his consent, Nitro hasn't undergone due process, and he's been held against his will. It gets worse. Nitro isn't even a corporeal form. He's been held in two separate gas canisters and been prevented from reforming. The lawyer demands Nitro be released at once. Now, despite the lawyer being portrayed as a bit blustery, he's actually right. Nitro hasn't been arrested, nor tried. He's been held illegally. That being said, the minute he is released, he blows Project Pegasus to kingdom come. Fortunately, he doesn't kill anyone, and he grabs his daughter and the lawyer and legs it. Now, I know what you're thinking, but you're wrong. Nitro, you're thinking, has grabbed the daughter because it's his daughter and he loves her. No, Nitro is an abusive ass. He only grabbed his daughter so he can talk her into withdrawing her money to give it to him so he can then go travelling to find Captain Marvel, who he has beef with. They head to the bank. Guess which one? If you guessed the many branches in New York City where Peter Parker wasn't, you aren't aware of the inherent coincidence of comic book storytelling. Of course Nitro goes to the same bank Peter goes to. Of course this sets off Peter's spider senses. And of course the arrival of the police, summoned by the lawyer, means Nitro blows the bank straight to hell. Some nice character beats here. Yes, Nitro was incarcerated against his will. But when someone has that much power and is as ill-tempered as he is, there are questions raised about public safety. He's only been out half an hour and he's already blown up Project Pegasus and the bank. And it's only due to the protection of the comics code that no one was hurt. Peter also feels guilty because, of course he does, he's Peter Parker, about ignoring his spider sense and letting the police handle the situation something he hopes hasn't got anybody hurt. The last half of the issue is the fight, but as usual for this era, it's an incredibly well done fight. Spidey quickly realises he needs to keep Nitro too busy to explode, so he swings him around and around, keeping him off balance and dizzy. Spotting a chemical factory, Spidey lures Nitro in and winds him up enough to get him to explode near tanks of nausea gas, apparently used for riots. When Nitro reconstitutes himself, the gas becomes a part of his body and he's violently sick whenever he tries to move. Spider-Man wins the day by using his brains rather than his brawn, a common occurrence in Roger Stern's stories. McDonnell and Mooney handled the art chores well enough. There's no splashy panels here or outre images. The art is solid and dependable, telling the story well, 
if blandly. It all wraps up well, if with a melancholy air, as Spider-Man reunites the lawyer and the daughter, all of whom realise that Nitro wasn't corrupt or driven insane by the power he had. He was just a tired, bitter old man. Well written, well drawn, a solid, dependable issue that moves the characters forward. A bit, anyway. Whilst telling an engaging story in which Peter doesn't lose, but he doesn't exactly win, either. Frank Miller provides the cover for issue 56, The Peril and the Pumpkin. Not, as you may have thought, a Green Goblin story, but actually featuring the villain Jack-O-Lantern. Another excellent Miller composition, ably abetted by Inca Bob Wyasek. Colours and the Ditko influence are again prime ingredients to its success. Jim Shooter, Marvel's editor-in-chief at this time, provides the layouts for Jim Mooney to finish. This issue follows the template set down by the other Roger Stern issues. It's another done-in-one tale, featuring a villain that isn't really thought of as a Spider-Man adversary at this point, although he will become more prominent later. The Jack-O-Lantern. He's a pretty outlandish-looking character, even for comics. There's a bit of the Green Goblin to it, with his green bodysuit and the goblin-like glider thing he bounces around on. The main visual element here is the pumpkin-styled mask he wears, which looks constantly aflame, and barely able to hide a man's head in it, but that's comics' artistic licence. The jack-o'-lantern stuff is pretty standard material. Jack is injured in a fight with Machine Man and taken to Bellevue Hospital. He's faking it, of course, and he and his men move to take the hospital for reasons I didn't really understand. In the Machine Man fight, he was holding dignitaries for ransom, but here he's just got a bunch of regular people, including, as it turns out, Aunt May's fiancé, Nathan Lebensky. So, you can see how Spider-Man's going to fit into all of this. The issue's a nice little reminder that the Marvel Universe used to be interconnected when events in a title like Machine Man could affect the events of the life of Spider-Man. This doesn't really happen nowadays, as it's hard work to coordinate all these titles, and the new guard don't seem like they can really be bothered. Seeing the vulture in this hospital after his last appearance is not only a nice continuity nod, but also sets up a future issue where Stern will establish Nathan and the vulture have got to know each other at therapy at this here hospital. Of course, the meat is the character beats on an emotional level and the professional structure of the story on a critical level. Spider-Man sees the siren screaming, which takes him to the hospital, where he takes a few photos of Jack being taken into Bellevue, which leads him to going to the Daily Bugle, where he learns of Jack's battle with Machine Man, which leads him to work, where he gets a phone call from Aunt May that takes him back to Bellevue. It's incredibly well put together. Character-wise, Peter manages to get one over on Jonah by being the only person with pictures of Jack-O-Lantern. He takes Steve to task for his treatment of Marcy, something he firmly believes is no one's business but hers. And when May calls for him to come over to her house as she's terrified something will happen to Nathan and she needs someone with her at this trying time, Peter is forced to let her down due to heading over to Bellevue to stop Jack. It's a gut-wrenching character moment. However, in addition to all this, Stern wraps up the Marcy Kane mystery, which is the weakest part of the issue by far, but it does give Marcy a chance to see Peter as actually a occurring person. His conversation with Deb about how people have a right to their own personal and private life highlights his passion, but his responsibility means Spider-Man gets in the way of Peter Parker's life once again. But even that's not enough. 
The fight between Spider-Man and Jack is truly funny, with Jack quickly realising he's well out of Spider-Man's league and he panics. We rarely see a villain actually smart enough to realise he's proper outclassed. And this was fun, especially as some previous writers seem to have forgotten just how formidable Spider-Man can be. Minor niggles. I have wondered if the Marcy Kane mystery was supposed to be a bit more than she just wears a wig because she likes having blonde hair. But that's what it is. It's nice to see a big subplot be nothing more than a character's vanity. But I think perhaps we were led to believe this was more than it is. My other niggle is that people seem to just be able to leave their jobs at ESU whenever they want. May wants Peter to go straight over to her, but she seems to forget Peter's a teacher. He can't just up and leave, he has classes. Likewise, Deb offers to go to May's with Peter. Isn't she supposed to be Dr Sloan's secretary? Doesn't he object to her just taking off whenever she wants? Other than these very, very minor points, another solid issue from Roger Stern. Peter Parker issue 57 is another Frank Miller cover and a great point of view shot. Hands with clawed bracelets move in on Jonah who vows to make, whoever this is, pay for taking the woman he loves. Spider-Man swings in from behind. Not as visually eye-catching as the last few issues, it nevertheless is an interesting composition. These Wings Enslaved is by the same creative team, and were Jim Shooter found time to do layouts for a comic whilst also being editor-in-chief, fools me. I was probably saved by not putting the web patterning on Spider-Man's costume. On the first three pages, the pattern is left out on ten panels. It's a wonderfully Spider-Man-y opening. He's swinging across town, holding a rent to tux, having been invited to soiree J. Jonah Jameson is throwing. It's to work, naturally, so his new Nikon is also inside the bag. So when a sparkly light envelops him and forces him to drop the bag, Peter is in a race against gravity to save the tux from being street pizza when it hits the New York sidewalk. Having saved the tux from certain destruction, he takes a moment to call Aunt May from a public call box. Not one of those police things that Doctor Who has. May has seemingly forgiven him since last issue, saying she was very upset, but she acknowledges that Peter has his own life. Good stuff here is Peter thinking he's been attacked by Peter Pan, and a woman asking a cop, Spider-Man, can't you arrest him? And the cop answering, for using a phone? I apologise for the hate crime that was those accents. The party Jonah is throwing is for Marla Madison, who has just been made Director of Domestic Research for the Brand Corporation. The Brand Corporation were a shady business with their hands in many and very different criminal pies. They ran through Marvel comics at this time like diarrhoea through someone who's eaten a curry. They appeared in many different comics, primarily Iron Man, where Tony Stark had many a dealing with Brand. For some reason, Roderick Kingsley's at the party. We would later find out that Roderick Kingsley is a member of the exclusive Gentleman's Club that Jonah is also a member of. So whether this was stern seeding that Jonah and Roderick have a relationship or whether it was just dumb luck that worked out, I guess we'll never know. Kingsley is revealed here to be a serial dater of many beautiful and largely busty women, which surprises Peter in another subtle acknowledgement that Kingsley may be gay. 
Peter doesn't seem to be. His first photos after meeting Jonah and being told where to get on with the job is to snap a few pictures of the many gorgeous women here, all of whom seem to be sporting strapless, low-cut dresses, all of whom seem to be spilling out of those same strapless, low-cut dresses. Another guest at the party is James Melvin, high muckety-mucket brand, and his very tall bodyguard, Simmons. Simmons is actually Killer Shrike, and the sparkly ball of light that attacked Spider-Man earlier is in fact Willow the Wisp, last seen dissolving into a ball of sparkly light. He was trying to contact Spider-Man, but Simmons will do. Wisp takes control of Killer Shrike's armour, forcing Shrike to grab Marla and take her to a top-secret R&D lab in New Jersey. Peter manages to switch to Spider-Man and pursues. It's the Brand Corporation that really takes centre stage here. As I say, Brand was a massive subplot running through loads of Marvel comics in the early 80s, and Stern would develop it more than most. Melvin knows more than he lets on, and it's up to Marla and Spider-Man, who Marla is not a fan of, given that she was introduced inventing a new Spider-Slayer for Jonah to try and save Will-O-The-Wisp. Stern still injects some typical Spider-Man moments. He pauses the fight for a few moments to call Aunt May back, something he also did back in the Lee Ditko run, and his handling of the brand security team and Shrike himself is very matter-of-fact. Again, these aren't guys that are really any match for our hero. The moral dilemma is in helping Wisp, and Spider-Man isn't sure that he and Marla have done the right thing. Marla, for her part, decides she isn't going to take Brand's job, and Jonah tells Melvin that the Bugle may start sniffing around in Brand's affairs, one of which being, why do they have this secret R&D lab in New Jersey? Melvin tells Jonah this will not end well for him, as it will become to involve rocks and oil, another large company that was seen to be rather lax in its morality during this era of Marvel Comics. This was solid. Again, Stern gets the character and delivers decent stories month in, month out. To go over to Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man issue 58 is relatively textless, which highlights the composition. This cover is not by Frank Miller, rather by John Byrne, another 80s Marvel superstar artist, and Joseph Robenstein, which were a team that worked well together to my eye, although, as usual, if you know anything about John Byrne, he seemed to have a few problems with it. Spider-Man swings across New York with wacky villain the Ringer hurling oversized hula hoops at him. Ring out the old, ring in the new, saw Stern joined by John Byrne on pencils and Vince Coletta on inks. Coletta has received a lot of flack over the years, some of it deserved, some of it not, but he doesn't do a bad job here. It looks a bit softer than Byrne's stuff normally does, but it isn't a crime against art. Peter Parker is settling into life as a teaching assistant and graduate student at TSU when he runs into Greg Salinger. Salinger is none too pleased to find himself in the Chem 101 due to an administrative cock-up, but soon feels a bit foolish when Peter reveals that he's the teacher. Salinger will ultimately become unhinged murderer the Fool Killer, so his whining about the fools at registration is foreshadowing. It's nice to see Peter also being written as an adult here, he can't be a lot older than Greg, if he's older at all, but Peter treats Greg well and is compassionate and considerate. 
We forget that Peter can be a jerk and sometimes self-centred, especially in Jerry Conway's room, but he is, deep down, a compassionate person. Some of the stern issues seem to be about putting that front and centre. Elsewhere, the Tinkerer's old place is being watched by the cops following his recent bust. This does not please Anthony Davis, the ringer, who is planning on picking up his new suit from the Tinkerer. Using his particulate matter condensers, try saying that seven times when you're drunk, which can turn soot and smog out of the air into rings, okay, if you say so, he sneaks into the Tinkerer's den. He tries out his new equipment and is delighted. However, a super strong man suddenly busts in, beats on the ringer, takes him out pretty easily. Carrying the ringer in one hand and a crate in the other, the super strong man leaves. For reasons of plot, the police haven't impounded any of the Tinkerer's devices and weaponry, which seems rather incompetent of them, but we don't have a story if this happens. The art, it has to be said, is a lot more dynamic under Byrne than it has been of late. Byrne could be prickly, allegedly, but there's a reason he became a hot artist in the 80s. Other artists were good at the time, but rarely did I buy a comic because, say, Dave Cockrum drew the art. No disrespect to Cockrum, but I did buy comics just because Byrne drew them. Back at ESU, Salinger quite enjoyed Peter's class, but, it, but it's the after-class activities Peter is interested in. Oh la la! Oh, get your mind out of the gutter, it's nothing like that. Deb Whitman and Phil Chang are holding court over Steve Hopkins for playing a prank on Marcy Kane. It's OTT and ridiculous, but it's all a gag at Steve's expense to reveal Marcy's new look. All these subplot shenanigans follow Peter to reconnect with Deb Whitman, and they arrange a date for later on. That's the ooh-la-la bit. This goes into earlier where I said Stern was making Peter more compassionate. After taking Deb for granted for most of the past few issues and over in Amazing, Deb and Peter started to really talk in this last issue, ostensibly about Marcy Kane, but a conversation dripping with subtext about secrets and the people who hold them. Here, they move their relationship forward, in that Peter and Deb have a proper date. A date that concludes with the old comic book shorthand for They Had Sex, Peter closing the door behind Deb as she presumably stays the night. The main problem with Deborah Whitman, couple though she was, was that she wasn't really Peter's type. Pretty, but Peter normally goes for the feistier girl, Felicia, MJ, or Gwen. His relationship with the quiet type, Deb and Betty Brandt, for example, never really worked out. Marcy also gets her own back on Steve with a pie to the face, a gag set up by Dr. Sloan. He even treats his staff to a small party. I grew to like this supporting cast, and it's a shame they all but disappeared by the mid-80s. The mystery man, meanwhile, has the ringer hog-tied, and he orders him to fight Spider-Man or else. The mystery man will detonate a new addition to the ringer's suit. A ring of pure explosive. The ringer wants none of this filth. He just wants a quiet life. But the mystery man is insistent. And thus... Spider-Man swings off to his date with Deborah Whitman, and the ringer attacks. Spider-Man can't take this guy seriously, and after handing him a humiliating beatdown, leaves to meet Deb. After a pleasant date, Peter tells Deb to meet him at his apartment to continue the night, as he has a few things to take care of. The things are the ringer, 
And by take care of, he means wrap the ringer up and leave him for the cops. Peter gets home just in time to meet Deb and continue their evening. The fight with the ringer is classic. It's just a funny beat, with Spidey taking this guy to the cleaners and being so nonchalant about it that he leaves the fight halfway through to come back to it later. The ringer knows he's outclassed and doesn't want to fight at all. He's been forced by Mr. Mr. Guest. Burns art has a fluidity to it rarely seen at this point. Spider-Man is a constantly moving sprite, never staying still for a moment, bouncing around and generally being annoying to the poor ringer, who is far more concerned about his dental health. According to Stern, Byrne was to become the regular penciler, but had to bow out when his Fantastic Four schedule was moved up. Across town, the mystery guest is revealed. He only wanted the ringer to get data on how Spider-Man fights, for when they next meet, the Beetle will be victorious. The redesign of the Beetle works quite well, being sleeker than the previous armour, which seemed cumbersome by contrast, and overall this is an absolutely brilliant issue. The curtain is nearly coming down on Roger Stone's run on Peter Parker, but he's closing it out in style. Ditko-inspired cover also features on Peter Parker issue 59, but it is again not by Frank Miller. Actually, Bob Wyasek. It's quite sparse in that the background is non-existent, and three figures point at Spider-Man saying, We want Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. They're including the logo in the dialogue, so it's not like these people literally know who he is. I Want Spider-Man is written by Roger Stern with art by Jim Mooney, although Jim Shooter does again do layouts, but under the name Jay Stritzitsky for some reason. Apparently this was Shooter's family name originally, and Stern used a pseudonym here as a gag. Stern apparently had a good time with Shooter on this book, as he liked his nice clear layouts. Felix Simon is the narrator of On the Trail Of, and in search of type series where he locates myths and legends such as the Loch Ness Monster or, in this case, Spider-Man. In Search Of was a real-life show hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and this is very definitely a spoof on that, as Felix notes that the producers are talking of reviving my old series The Star Lords as a motion picture. Felix wants all new footage of Spider-Man, not stock from the archives, and he asks the producer, Mori Toshiba, to get it. Mori turns to Martin Blank and Jack, cameramen for the show. Marty seems infatuated with Spidey and swears they can get the footage required. Fans with long memories will remember the name Martin Blank. He was the funky gibbon all the way back in Amazing Spider-Man 110 through 115 back in 1972. This issue doesn't make mention of this just yet. There are no footnotes or anything. It's all been kept back as a secret reveal. I'd be interested to know how many fans made this connection immediately back then, as the Gibbon wasn't exactly a top banana, villain-wise. Marty feels aggrieved that Spidey has a rep that by right should be his, and plans to take his revenge. I don't know where Marty gets the idea that Spider-Man's rep should be the Gibbons. But, you know, comic book supervillains are often delusional. There's a great beat next. Stern had a real handle on Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and the little interludes were often the high points of the issue. He's in point this section, where Spidey is pondering why Deb is still dating Biff Rifkin after they had such a good date the other night. Hmm, 
date. Right. Spidey comes across two boy racers who nearly run down an old guy. There's humour. Spidey telling the old guy to cross at the green, not in between. Action. Spidey webs the car stood upright. And righteous anger. If these guys weren't jerks, the old guy wouldn't have been in trouble in the first place. It's all handled very well, and he's quite funny. Anyway, someone who is a top banana, villain-wise, or top of the charts anyway, is the Beetle, who only sent the ringer after Spider-Man last issue to gather data on how Spidey moves and dodges. With the data analysed, he hopes a weakness can be found when he and Spider-Man next meet. The Beetle hasn't been around for a while. He last fought Spider-Man in a fill-in issue back in Peter Parker issue 16 in 1978, and before that in Amazing Spider-Man 94 in 1971. He bounced around a few of the comic series like Daredevil and The Defenders, but he really did fit Stern's remit of bringing back long-forgotten foes or introducing people Spidey really fought. And so, all our elements come crashing together. Beetle is monitoring the likely whereabouts of Spider-Man as is Marty and Jack. Jack quickly learns Marty doesn't like anybody making a monkey out of him. Needless to say, both collide when the Beetle and the Gibbon both spot Spidey at the same time, but the Beetle lets the Gibbon take the lead, biding his time. Spidey finally has had enough of Marty's tale of woe and hauls off and belts him. Whilst checking that the Gibbon is okay, the Beetle topples a wall on Spider-Man. His Spider-Man allows him to get the gibbon out of the way, but his act of selflessness means the wall comes down on him like, well, like a ton of bricks. With Spidey down, the beetle attacks. Another truly great issue. As with the best Stern stories, characterization is top-notch and the action unfolds well. Issue 60 is a double-sized issue celebrating five years of this comic. The cover is stunning. A poster shot from a time when that wasn't overdone. It's also Frank Miller at his very best. Beautifully lit from underneath, Miller eschews straight lines depicting Spidey via shadow and broken colours, with the highlights of the costume differentiated depending upon if they're in light, a spotlight shining on Spider-Man, or in shadow. I have no idea what, if anything, he's supposed to be standing on, nor do I care. Inclemania was by Stern and Mooney, but Ed Hannigan steps in as layout guy. I presume, anyway. All three are simply credited as storytellers. The joy of Stern's run is present in these last few issues, and that he writes monthly periodicals as they kind of sort of should be. Taken as separate comics, they all work. Each issue has a beginning, a middle and an end. Each story features setup and payoffs, character work, action and drama. But if you take them as a whole and read them consecutively, Stern manages to avoid overly wordy exposition to bring you up to speed, and instead they read like a long chapter in someone's life. They work as short stories and longer arcs. It's masterful, and knocks many a modern comic structure into a cocked hat. Even this issue, which begins deep into the action, has enough going on that readers wouldn't feel lost. The Beetle consolidates his attack as the Gibbon realises what a fool he's been as Spider-Man continues to be filmed for On the Trail Of. Spidey's not at his best, being crushed under a wall will do that to you, but he's still holding his own, which bugs the Beetle. He's got computers that should be predicting Spider-Man's moves, but somehow Spidey keeps eluding him. This is why Spider-Man keeps his Spider-Sense a secret, kids. Ed Hannigan throws a lot of Ditko-inspired poses into the art, but as with the previous issues, 
except number 58, it all just looks like Jim Mooney, irrespective of pencils or layouts. That's not a bad thing, but if Shooter or Hannigan have an individual style, which Hannigan certainly does, it's not on display here. Spidey uses a mistake by the Beetle to stay out of the fight, falling into New York's sewer system and deciding to weather the smell and take a break. He doesn't know that the Beetle has taken the Gibbon hostage for later. Stern takes a moment to introduce some humour at Spider-Man's expense. Popping up from the sewers through a manhole, he's accosted by a lady with a yapping poodle and then ran over by a car. Forced back into the sewers, Spider-Man decides he smells worse than a politician's promise and heads to ESU to shower in the sports department. He's confronted by Coach Barnstorm, who has beef with Peter for failing one of his top students. This is a great scene for two reasons. One, it shows Peter's snobbery towards sport. There was no way Peter Parker was going to give a free pass to a football student, no matter how good he is. Without dwelling on it, or even mentioning it at all, we're shown that high school still affects Peter, and the bullying he received at the hands of Flash Thompson lives on, no matter how much he's grown up. Peter doesn't value sport, instead feeling they are lesser in some way than more academic pursuits, and this is a true character beat showing Peter isn't perfect. B. It also shows how much Peter has grown. He takes absolutely no guff from the coach, telling him to go to hell, basically. He's no longer puny Parker. He's a man now. There's some character work with Greg Salinger and Deb Whitman, but Deb's other boyfriend, Biff Rifkin, is on the scene. There's some nice moments here from Peter's realisation that Deb's salary puts his own to shame, and that Deb does prefer Peter to Biff, but Biff is there for her, and Peter is frequently disappearing. The Expositional News Network informs Peter that the Beatle has caught the Gibbon and wants a rematch. As if proving Deb's point, Peter makes his excuse and leaves. We then have another recurring appearance from Lieutenant Keating. These recurring faces make the world feel real and lived in. The Beatles converted a rooftop into a swivel roof, which makes no sense, but it does give us an absolutely hilarious moment where Spider-Man fires his web over the Beatles' head. Beatles thinks he missed, and what he actually was doing was pulling the swivel roof over on itself, clubbing the Beatle over the head. Not just genuinely funny, but a true demonstration of Spider-Man doing the unpredictable. Spidey is completely wiped out, though, from the previous day's exertions, and he manages to take the Beetle down, but not out. The Gibbon comes in and lays a haymaker on the Beetle, a punch heard around the five boroughs as the news crews have just got a TV signal, it having previously been blocked by the Beetle's equipment. The Gibbon is hailed as a hero, and Spider-Man crawls off to lick his wounds. Which run has quite a few endings like this, not depicting Peter as a loser or a useless millennial who can't tie his own shoelaces, but someone for whom nothing goes right all the time. A feeling of melancholy hangs over the events of the stories, that life is in a constant series of knockdowns from which you just have to keep getting up. If we learn nothing from Peter Parker, it's that we always get back up. He shares this with Rocky Balboa, the realisation that nothing hits as hard as life. The rest of issue 60 is a retelling of Spider-Man's origin complete for the first time. Stern and artist Greg LaRocque combine elements from Amazing Fantasy 15 and the additional scenes featured in Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number one with a few added moments 
of characterization. And with that, Roger Stern would leave Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. But he wouldn't be leaving Spider-Man. In a couple of short months, he would take over being the regular writer on The Amazing Spider-Man, where Stern's work would go from strength to strength, solidifying his rep as one of the finest Spider-Man writers, not only of the 80s, but of all time. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form, a place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences, peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kid Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! Let's have a look at some emails. Show me Jack Bone has emailed in. Hello, Jack. You ask if my memories of Space 1999 come from the movies they made of the episodes. I want to say no. I remember the Anderson movie package of the 80s, but my station seemed to use it for kids after school entertainment, showing only the Super Marionation and not 1999 UFO. I particularly wanted to see UFO again. My memories were that it was mostly the Time Slash episode and the Interceptor pilot swinging into the laundry chutes. I had to wait until the dawn of the DVD era to refresh those memories. But now I'm wondering if the 1999 episodes weren't made first and folded into the movie package. And I'm not sure I didn't see them between the end of the series and the 90s when PBS lost Doctor Who and was looking for other British sci-fi. See, I was only asking that because it seems strange to me that the collective memory would remember the episodes more that were made into movies than just individual episodes. Because I've seen this before. People remember the Erwolf episode where he was drugged and lost a year of his life. And that was one of the episodes that, were, that was combined into another episode to make a mini straight-to-DVD movie. And people remember the Mission Galactica episode of Battlestar Galactica, the Pegasus episodes, because again, that was made into a film. And those film versions or straight to video releases seem to be the ones that lodged in the head because you would rent them again and again and again or watch them a couple of times while you had the rental. Or in the case of Mission Galactica, I remember Mission Galactica being on all the time when I was a kid. Not so much nowadays. The original telefilm Battlestar Galactica has quite a lot, but Mission Galactica seems to have disappeared. Which is a shame, so I wouldn't mind seeing that again to see how they've uh, edited it all together. Anyway, thank you for that, Jack. I appreciate your email very much. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. There's only that one email this time, so, you know, send me something. Not doing anything else? Uh, that'll be it for this time. I don't know what's happening next time as I record this. We are rapidly approaching Christmas 19... 1974, Christmas 2024. Don't know where I lost 50 years. Um, but that what happens. Maybe it's under the couch. I don't know. Um, so 
when I decide whatever is coming next is next and is happening and I will record it and it will come in your ears. Hey Kids Comics though is monthly and it's back and it's better than ever. Michael and I return with whatever comics take our fancy at any given time. Okay, before we go, there was um, one thing that I just wanted to to discuss. If you have listened to this show over any degree of time, you know that I don't tend to talk about stuff I don't like. I don't really have a negative vibe on anything. I will say if I don't like something, but overly this is a show about promoting what you enjoy, stuff you enjoy. Everything has come through unscathed, but most things have. And I've certainly never done anything like what I'm about to do now. I was reading Amazing Spider-Man issue 38, Legacy number 932, which is pretty much this month's issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. It's, you know, it's it's another wreck rap issue, so it's... Well, it is what it is. But it's the letters page that calls me to raise a, a Spock-like eyebrow. Every month, the Amazing Spider-Man letters page editor, who is Nick Lowe, publish uh, a letter from the pro-marriage brigade. Now, and again, if anyone's listened to me for any length of time, you know, I'm neither pro nor anti the marriage. I didn't think that the marriage was handled properly. I didn't think it was built up too properly. I didn't think it was arrived at organically. I don't have anything intrinsically against Peter Parker being married. I felt that they botched that. Uh, and it's, it's common knowledge that the, the creators generally thought that it was a mistake done by a guy who was on his way out the door, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, and then they were stuck with it. They couldn't really undo it because nobody wanted to just have Peter Parker divorce MJ because it kind of writes MJ out of the picture in many ways. You can't go back. Um, so they publish a letter from the marriage brigade, and it's normally so they can dismiss it slightly and say, well, I don't think everyone feels the same as you. But this one, this one was particularly weird. It was in uh, a letter from Ahmed Khalaf, talking about how one more day and all of that, did the usual stuff. But he gets to a point where he says, the marriage to many showed how much they've grown together, which fits what felt like the common theme of the first four decades of Spider-Man, that being growing up. No issue with that. The guy likes the marriage. I was ambivalent about the marriage. But we agreed that there was a central core theme to Spider-Man as I interpreted it. It was a coming-of-age story in many ways. Now, yes, Stan didn't know what he was doing. Him and Steve Ditko were making up as they went along, as he was with other collaborators. But certainly there was a feeling that this was the progression of a person's life from childhood to adulthood. In many ways, that's why I think the strip should have ended around Amazing Spider-Man 99. Because in that issue, if you go back and reread it, he he embraces who he is, he embraces his life and his destiny, and he go, he's become an adult. Essentially, to me, that's the end of the story. Yes, personal responsibility was also a big theme in the Spider-Man strip. There is no denying that. But certainly, for me, the dirt certainly did feel like it was a coming-of-age tale. Which is why this blindsided me. The editor, the current editor of The Amazing Spider-Man said, I don't agree that the theme of the first four decades of Amazing Spider-Man was growing up. 
I am literally doing the Nathan Fillion gif. I was dumbfounded by that. I was absolutely gobsmacked by it. That the editor, the current editor of the Amazing Spider-Man, presumably a learned and intelligent person, did not perceive one of the core themes of Amazing Spider-Man being that of growing up, of coming-of-age tale, the story of a boy becoming a man. I thought that that was commonly accepted knowledge, that that's what the strip was about. I thought that that was so much commonly accepted knowledge that essentially that's what translated over to the Sam Raimi stories. In those three films, it was about Peter Parker growing up. The sensational Spider-Man cartoon, generally regarded by a lot of people, as one of the finest extracurricular media versions of the character, was literally, had it been fortunate to run for the five seasons as it was planned for, to show Peter growing up through high school and he would be a different person by the time that series finished. The Tom Holland movies have essentially been about that same thing. So to have the current editor of The Amazing Spider-Man say that, well, Spider-Man wasn't about that, just kind of rocks your fandomic world. Because suddenly you're sat there thinking, did I spectacularly miss the point of those strips? Is what those strips were telling me as I was an, a child and then an adolescent and then an adult relating to the growth of the character in, in a similar way to my own personal growth? Was I wrong? Was I mistaken to think one of the themes of this strip was growing? I thought that was self-evident. And yes, as you get older, certainly some of the the things, that, the beliefs that you hold to be self-evident certainly do need re-examination and rebuilding and reconstruction, whether you believe them or not anymore, or whether you've moved on. But ultimately, I came down on the side of, that is literally part of what the strip was about. Not the only thing, but certainly a massive part of the strip was it was about Peter growing up. Now, I know that the party line at the moment is marriage bad, never going back. And the problem with that, as I perceive it, is certainly since Dan Slott left the book, and I don't think everything Dan Slott did was brilliant, but Brand New Day had its moments. Dan Slott's run, particularly Superior Spider-Man, had its moments. He should have stopped there. He shouldn't have carried on. But I think he was more enamoured with the idea of holding the title longest running writer on Spider-Man than he was about actually thinking, well, do I really need to be here anymore? Are these stories I really need to tell? But that's neither here nor there. Certainly that perception that the strip wasn't about growing up certainly explains why the Spider-Man strip and the Peter Parker of it all of the past five or so years has felt stagnant and uninvolving and like we are literally not going anywhere or doing anything of interest with this character anymore. Because if that's the belief of the editorial team, that's why we're getting drivel like this story about Spider-Man being fighting with Wreck Rap, who I call Recrap who is a demon from limbo under the Goblin Queen's orders 
And if any of that sounds to you like seriously not particularly a Spider-Man story, you wouldn't be wrong. And this issue, that story stops halfway through. And the back half of the issue is the lead into the new gang war story, because we've never done a gang war story before. And we've just followed on from doing an Inferno ripoff, which was a 90s or 80s crossover with X-Men. And before that, we did yet another yawnsome take on Craven's Last Hunt. And suddenly that one comment suddenly made sense as to why this strip has sucked for such a long time. If you are not sticking by one of the core themes, core tenets of your character, then that explains why every single issue of this now just feels like wheel spinning, padding, nothing's happening, nothing interesting's ever going to happen ever again as long as we live in this holding pattern that Peter Parker is going to terminally remain this incredibly feckless 27, 26-year-old, whatever he's supposed to be. Well, that was it. I was just so gobsmacked, as I say, by that comment. But what do you think? I would love to hear from keen Spider-Man fans. Am I wrong? Was the Spider-Man strip not about growing up? Was it not a coming-of-age tale? A slow coming-of-age tale, no doubt. But nevertheless, was that not one of the core tenets of the strip, along with the theme of personal responsibility? I hope you're all doing okay. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year in whatever denomination you celebrate. And I will see you all again real soon. Take care. Everything's going to be okay.